Welcome to the new Cat Chat brought to you by Dr. Elsie's, the wonderful private company owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian whose personal mission is to formulate litters that keep cats using the litter box, which keeps them in their loving homes. I'm Tracy Hotchner, the author of The Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know. My mission is to entertain, educate, and inspire cat lovers like you to give their kitty cats the best possible life in nutrition, affection, and environmental enrichment. With Dr. Elsie's support, the Cat Chat Show brings you interviews with cat authors and experts, some old favorites, some new conversations, so you can better understand and appreciate your own feline family members. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding and contributing sponsor of my Cat Film Festival, short films from around the world that celebrate the kitty cat, which will be back in theaters as soon as they reopen. Meantime, thanks to Dr. Elsie's, you can now see streaming versions of the Cat Film Festival for free on Amazon Prime and Tubi TV. Hope you enjoy listening and watching. Jim Gorman, I'm so happy to meet you. You write so wonderfully and extensively about dogs. When did that become your passion, or when did you get assigned it by the New York Times, which I doubt is how it happened? Um, well, I guess dogs have been my passion since since I was a kid. I was one of those kids who, um, uh, you know, grew up reading dog books. My dog was – I was an only child, so my dog was sort of my sibling. Yep. Um, you know, I've had dogs my whole life for a long time with kids. I'm the sort of person who, um, I'd show up with new pets and not just dogs for, for the kids ostensibly. I put that in air quotes, <laughs> you know, but, uh, and your kids you know, tolerated I, I, your passion. Well, sure. I'm the sort of father who thought, you know, well, a parrot would be a great pet <laughs> for a nine year old girl. I'll take care of it if you don't. <laughs> And now, of course, the parrot will outlive both of you by another hundred years. Right. Well, the parrot actually uh, lived about 30 years, was a son conure, and uh, had a lovely life, partly with us. And then um, it turns out parrots are far more um, needy and demanding than oh, dogs. Yeah. So actually, when I left, um, I was working at home, and I would sit and do interviews like this and interviewing other people on the phone for for my work with the parrot on my shoulder, uh, <laughs> chewing on my ear. And when I went to work at the Times, um, a cousin of my wife's who had uh, had parrots and son Conyers also um, took on the, the parrot, which I thought was a male, turned out to be a female. But, uh, you know. <laughs> so funny. My father has the same thing when he was about, I don't know, pick a number. He's now a hundred and a half and ah. got all his marbles and has an, a new book coming out um, in, in June. But he had, I guess he'd had another parrot. It died of something or another. And his marriage fell apart at the same time to his second wife. And he claims that my sister and I got this hand-raised parrot for him. I guess we did. One forgets, you know, the things you do to try and curry favor with your with your father, not knowing that it that it was going to live all these decades beyond him, which it's still there. But he thought Ernie ah. was a boy and named him, I guess, after Ernest Hemingway. I don't know. But Ernie's a girl and he still calls her him. He's very not cool about this whole, you know, gender fluidity thing. So right. he insists on calling a full up female a male. But, yeah, it's really demanding, and it bites, and it's annoyed. And I guess Irene Pepperberg taught us all just how deep the life of a parrot can be, right? Right, 
Right. So this is we're going to talk about cats and dogs and the inequity in research, but it's also a warning to anyone out there interested in birds. You know, go over to Jim's house and meet his bird if he still has one. But it's probably <laughs> not a commitment you want to make because it it will outlive you on many levels. Yes. So, Jim, this is a, an amazingly cool piece that you wrote, and and it brings up so many philosophical issues about humans' attitudes towards cats and dogs, leaving aside how much research is done into them. At what point did the topic jump out at you? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's very funny because I have a – I mean, I'm interested in, in all animals. You know, I write about snakes. I write about uh, – Donkeys. Donkeys. Yes. Uh, you name it. So, And although I'm more a dog person, I would uh, – both my daughters have cats, and I like cats, you know. Um, so I would, you know, any interesting research would, would appeal to me. Right. It's a good story, but my editor had noticed that I and the, some other writers tend to write more about dogs and, and just sort of asked offhand, well, why do we have so many dog stories? <laughs> and, uh, my, another editor passed that on to me. Uh, the editor I work with most was the, my boss, uh, who, who thought about this. And I thought, well, I better check that out because what if I'm, uh, you know, just just writing about dogs because I like them, which right. is, is okay. But I, I you didn't want to be, want to be a biased journalist. You wanted to be no, an objective journalist, exactly. Right? <laughs> and what was adorable was you went back to many of the of I guess you could call leading lights, thought leaders, influencers, smart smart people doing research in general about dogs. And I noticed in parentheses you said this one likes both species. This one actually has cats, although the research is done on dogs. It was so cute because I don't think that our individual choices or call it even a leaning or a bias have much to do with this topic that you raise. No. About research being done and where the value lies. For us, right? But if we want to be selfish, to, no. It was, it as was, I was examining my own, yes. you know, oh gee, I, I have dogs. I thought I'd ask the researchers too. Okay, yes, because it was written, uh, you know, not I wouldn't say tongue in cheek, but taking a fairly lighthearted approach. It was, yes. Uh, to, so I, I asked each, each researcher, well, now, do you have dogs? Do you have cats? <laughs> do you have a bias? And some have a very clear bias. Uh, Leslie Lyons, who's been very involved in, in cat genomics, has cats, and she likes to say it, it uh, just to you know annoy the dog people. Uh, <laughs> cats rule and dogs drool. Yeah. yeah, we've all seen that T-shirt or that bumper sticker or whatever right. it may be. But what's interesting about it is that if we look at research being done on dogs or cats – you talk in other articles that you've written about the Broad Institute and some funding that it will give for what-if research, thought thought experiments. But a lot of the research that's done, particularly about diseases, cancer, and others, in the end, one hopes selfishly, since it's human time, money, and energy that goes into it, might reflect or be helpful on these, this scourge of, of diseases that happens in people as well. And in your in your research, you discovered that there's actually some cat cancers, although cancer occurs much less frequently in cats than in dogs, that would be more directly useful to humans. Did that surprise you? Uh, yes. It, well, the whole thing kind of surprised me. I didn't realize, first of all, that there is, in fact, more research uh, involving dogs than cats. And the second thing that I didn't realize that I found out is that a lot of this is due to dogs being a very good model for um, can many cancers in human beings. And the researchers who pursue this are looking for things that will help the dogs 
and the people. So the National Institutes of, of Health, a huge source of, of grants for everyone, has a lot of grants for dogs and and fewer for um, research on cats. And But there are, for instance, I talked to one um, veterinarian who's pursuing a Ph.D. at the Broad Institute uh, who said, well, look, you know, there are some diseases, there are some cancers that cats get that are, I think, might be a better model mm-hmm. for uh, human beings. Um, Which I think was oral cancer and yeah, lymphoma. Some mouth cancers, yes, and lymphomas as well, right? And there's another kind of kidney disease that another researcher pointed out cats get um, that humans uh Get and that could also be a, an important thing to look at. And I, I want to point out that I didn't I didn't go into the kind of research that is strictly um, oh let's use a dog as an experimental animal. I mean some of that goes on, but I was looking at sort of two things: one, behavioral and evolutionary research. You know what are dogs? What are cats? What yes. are they really yes. like? And then this sort of medical research where you're trying to cure the animal and the person at the same time. Well, I think um, that the, the whole One Health idea, the idea that, yeah, that what yeah. affects you and me can affect someone in India, can affect a cat in Siberia, is is a really interesting idea, the connectivity as the world kind of shrinks or gets more connected. But I, I think it is important to point out that that kind of anti-vivisection uh, of kind of placards that used to happen, I want to say in the 60s, mm-hmm. where there were, there were a lot of animals being cruelly manipulated or mishandled and only until recently even chimpanzees and other animals that have suffered cruelly as a species that that's done less and less and the the giving of a disease or an illness to an animal in order to benefit us is no longer the model because they are discovering animals that have these various diseases they already got them so if you're, yes. you're right, I mean, so you, I don't think you can actually give a cat oral cancer. I'm not sure, but I'm going to guess you can't. So well, you're, most of the people, yeah, that I talked to were talking, they were talking about naturally occurring yes. cancer. I mean, I think that makes a better model in any case. Definitely. Because, you know, there's a, there's a saying that goes around in the research world that if you get cancer, it's great to be a mouse because we could cure just about everything. Oh, in mice. that's and, interesting. I never heard that. Yeah, because it doesn't necessarily translate, you know. We're both absolutely, um, but there are surprising things. Well, so, uh, a naturally occurring cancer with uh, a natural solution, where the genetic basis or susceptibility is shared uh, with humans and um, animals, that's probably a better way to to look for for uh, you know solution to some of these problems. Well, what it made me realize, which I knew but hadn't sort of stitched together because you're someone who stitches a lot of different ideas together and goes off in various directions and then brings it back all together. So I find reading your writing very stimulating because it Thank seems you. to just be about cats and dogs and research and then you talk about things that cats are rarer in archaeological sites because they weren't eaten as often by ancient humans and you only find waste in waste areas if they were eaten. It's like, whoa, there's a whole new idea <laughs> that had never crossed my mind. Isn't but that a surprise? It was yeah. a surprise. And, and like you could do a whole other article about, you know, archaeological sites and what sort of bones were eaten there and, and what were their recipes for dog. I mean, no, I'm only kidding. But it, well, dogs have been, you know, humanity's best friend for in one way of speaking for, for a long, long time. Yes. But 
they were a friend that came with culinary benefits, unfortunately. Well, look at horses. I mean, the French yeah. still eat horse meat to this day. You yeah. know, and they're also some of the great breeders of the most magnificent horses. They have beautiful uh, dressage horses, they, uh, jumping horses, running horses, and they still eat them. So we can still live with these contradictions. It wasn't just, you know, the Neanderthal types or early primitive cultures. It made me think about the fact that the sheep reproductive system, I know this because of the books that I wrote years ago on pregnancy and childbirth, were the very best model for human female reproductive systems. That's so interesting. I didn't research know that. was done on them, and it really benefited humanity. Now, I'm sure that many sheep were cut open, if you will, unnecessarily. It's not because they had a, a breech birth kind of thing, but that, mm-hmm. but that was the best place to learn about the uterus, and, and I think I'm right about pigs. I mean, one of the reasons that we use pig valves and arteries for repair in humans, I believe that the, that the porcine cardiac system is somehow interesting or valuable to us. Not that I think they, it's very close to, to human, yeah. I, so I isn't that odd, right? Used. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, of course, none of it has to do with showing any particular interest or respect for those, for those species, where with dogs and cats, some of this a kind of leaning towards a species over another. And another fascinating point that you made, one of the scientists said to you that science was attracted to dogs because there are so many different breeds and a vast range of shapes and sizes, and we could actually make a cat as small as a hamster or as big as a Great Dane if we manipulated them. I mean, that's a whole nother topic of, of, of interest, right? Yeah, pretty scary. The the researcher said yes. a, a cat the that size would be a of little a like a, a large, that, uh, yeah, like as, as big as a large lion. Well, dogs have been domesticated for a longer time than cats, and they have been um, bred selectively for many different kinds of breeds and shapes and sizes more intensively than cats. Probably not more intensively than pigeons, although I don't know size doesn't vary that much in pigeons, but so. There's a lot of genetics that, from a purely scientific point of view, is very interesting in dogs. And when you have – in dogs, there are breed-specific cancers. Right. Not to say that the other breed can't, that, but this breed is, is susceptible to one sort of cancer and this breed to another. That makes it much easier to track down the causes right. of those cancers. You've got a smaller group um, Sort of self-selected. And like cats, the large male yes, golden retriever so, is especially neutered young is going to be more susceptible to cancer than any of the other golden retrievers, all of which are more susceptible than corgis. Right. Yes. So you can track that and you can say, well, right. what were the changes when we came to this dog instead right. of a corgi? And you've already got a small, uh, mm-hmm. you know, area. To and you were going to say that in cats that uh, they're just like a, a, a mixed breed mostly. Yeah, there are. I well, I don't know the exact estimates. I think one of the researchers guessed at about forty breeds of cats, and there are um, sort of cat fancy the breeding of very uh, specific, you know, purebred uh, cats with different characteristics is increasing. But in terms of the number of breeds and the intensity of interest, there's um, there's less. There has been less up to now than there has been with dogs. So you don't have quite that variation. Um, it's probable that, I mean, the researcher said that there, you know, you could breed 
a cat that the different sizes, it would be just as easy. I, I don't know. Perhaps if you tried, you might run into some difficulties. Or although there's apparently there's now a, I don't know the name of it, but there's a kind of teacup cat. Oh my! Sorry uh, to hear that. That's being. Anyway, yeah. we humans just yeah. can't keep our hands to ourselves. We just have to keep meddling. I mean, some of the meddling is frivolous <laughs> like that, and one could even say the dog fancy. I mean, not to in any way speak negatively of dog breeding, dog breeders, or, or dog shows, but the, the, the theoretical excitement that every year there's seven more breeds that are now being recognized by the AKC or the UKC or whatever. It's like, you know, these are just all dogs that have been around forever in these countries, and now we're going to give them a name and tell them that they get to have their own category. It's sort of strange to me that there's still that fascination, but I think it speaks to this very topic. Humans are totally fascinated by their manipulation of a species. Yes, we'd love to get yes. close to nature, but as we get really close, then we want to – Yes. Well, what can we do? What can we do? Sort of let's, – Let's make the fins a little bigger. How about a fish that can't swim? How about a dog that can't breathe? And you know? – I mean, there's huge controversy yes. among dog people about Absolutely. Uh, the whole brachycephalic situation. Yeah. They get sn- more and more snub-nosed, and breathing has to be surgically, you know, sort of enhanced at in puppyhood. And, cert- and, and, and if you look at the uh, um, the history, I mean, the bulldogs of 100 years yes. ago so were very different. Yeah. I mean, we, we humans so. just don't know our own limits. And I, I think that this article, which there's a, going to be a link to along with the podcast, of course, really brings up a lot of philosophical questions and ideas that you float out there that are food for thought. So when you're all reading it and being interested in this issue of you know societal bias between dogs and cats – Think a little about some of the other things that that Jim Gorman brings up in the article because I think all of it's food for thought. And I think, oh, Jim, write an article about that. No, no, write an article about that because you know so many smart people in the field that can lead you there. Uh, It's great work and and great um, thinking. It's just like freewheeling thinking, and I don't think there's enough of that around. You know, you, you being the kind of research journalist you are, you don't go in with a bias. You go in with a passion, and I think that that's a wonderful distinction. You go in open to whatever comes to you with a passion for what you find, and I think that makes for, for wonderful writing and wonderful reading. So I thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you. And I look forward to, so to having you back on the show. There's so many amazing articles you've done. The and it would be great, oh, and to, I think that wonderful for the audience to hear the the voice of of the man behind all the this wonderful writing and ideas, and off, often the times being the times, great videos, fantastic photos to go with, and uh, it's all all of it a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has deepened your understanding and affection for cats everywhere. It's been brought to you by Dr. Elsie's, which has broken new ground by creating a healthy, dry, and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein, which is inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey. I recommend that wet food should always be your cat's primary diet. But clean protein is the first dry cat food I believe can be a healthy choice if you want to feed dry food, even as part of your cat's diet. This show is also supported by cat water, specially created for cats because kitties don't naturally drink water. Cat water is chlorine-free, ozonated, and lightly acidic, which encourages them to drink more, promoting urinary tract health with an ideal urinary pH. 
Clinical studies by the University of Montreal School of Veterinary School showed that cat water dramatically reduces minerals in a cat's urinary tract and that 9 out of 10 cats preferred cat water to tap water and drank 48% more of it. Cat water is 100% free of all minerals known to cause urinary infections and bladder stones, which matters because UTIs are the number one reason cats are taken to the vet. Amazon, Petco, and other pet stores carry bottles of cat water.